You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning, Redemption. I almost said "Heidi Ho, Redemption." I have no idea why. Um, but then I told you I was going to do it anyways. All right, kiddos, it's time for you to head to uh, to Kids Church if you want. You're welcome to stay in here if you'd like. I promise it'll probably be a lot more fun and interesting back there. Um, I'm a nice guy, but probably not all that exciting. So we'll see y'all later. We'll see y'all in a few minutes. Uh, we've invited our kids into, our older kids, our elementary age kids, into our service um, so that they can experience worship alongside of us and with us. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. Um, but it's been kind of fun. It's been beautiful. It's been cool to watch. Like last week as they came back in, we as a congregation were literally singing to God, all the poor and powerless, and our little kids are filing in, and it was just a beautiful moment. Um, it was cool. So anyways... We are uh, encouraging masks. We're not going to drag you out of here if you don't have a mask, right? That's your choice. We are encouraging it, and that is the exact right word. It is an encouragement. It is not a necessity. Um, simply want to keep each other safe, but more than that, we want to keep each other at work. <laughs> and we want to keep kids in school and just all of the stuff that we depend on week after week. Um, and so if you're willing to do that, great. If not, no worries. We're glad you're here. Um, if you're new here, welcome to Redemption. There's a card in front of you that says Radically Inclusive Hope. You'll fill that out, drop it in the back in a little black box there. I'd love to shoot a text message or an email to you later this week and just invite you to coffee, hear your story a little bit, give you a chance to get to know us a little bit, um, give you a chance to ask some questions. Won't bug you, won't hassle you. The ball will be in your court after that, but we'd love to get to know you. So, yeah, glad you're here. All right, so I'm going to start this morning's sermon by saying something a little wacky, a little weird, a little out there, uh, a little like, wait, uh, I don't know about that. Um, but I think it's profoundly Christian. I think it's uh, attested to from Genesis to Revelation that the scriptures speak to it over and over and over again in a variety of different ways through different stories using different vocabulary. But I'm pretty convinced of this. Humanity's primary problem is a worship problem. Humanity's primary problem is a worship problem. Here's what I mean. That our, our brokenness, our tendency to live into the gross stuff in the world, like to participate in it, like enthusiastically, is partly a worship problem. That our existential angst, our quest and search for meaning, our dissatisfaction when we think we find it and we're let down again is primarily a worship problem. 
all the mess and the brokenness and just the junk of this world, I think, is rooted in a problem of worship. Right now, you might be expecting me to say something like, it's because we don't worship and we ought to worship and that will fix everything. That's not actually what I'm going to say. What I'm also not saying is that, gosh, I know you've got some problems, but if you would just worship, then all your problems will go away. That's not what I'm saying either. It's not a lack of worship. No, 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 no. We are worshipers, every single one of us, regardless of whether you are Christian or agnostic or atheist or a nun, whatever, not an N-U-N, but an N-O-N-E. My Twitter is filled with Christian knees, and that's one. Anyways, um, so we're going to look at worship from three angles today. One, I want to look at the existential angle. Two, I want to look at the theological angle. And then I want to look at, probably most importantly, the practical angle. So it's a little different sermon this morning, a little philosophical, but like hang with me. I think this will help put like a massive foundational piece in place for a lot of us. This is the last in our eight-week series of reimagining the church. We're looking at the question of what does it mean to actually like be the church? And we've spent eight weeks kind of exploring various um, glimpses or pictures in the book of Acts. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a 14-year-old boy. Um, that happens from time to time. And, and in that, we've been trying to ask ourselves, like, what does it mean to be a worshiping community? What does it mean to give witness to the resurrected Jesus who supposedly and allegedly, like, dwells among us by his spirit? What does it mean for us to be the church? And I've saved for this last and final week to, to kind of put in place what I think is, is really the foundational piece like we're worshipers. We're worshipers. And part of what it means to be the church is to learn what it means to worship rightly. I think every human being worships. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, what are you worshiping? And so I want us to leave here with a better understanding of what God is doing among us right here in this moment, and why Sunday after Sunday, this hour is our most important hour of the week. Right? I told you, crazy, bold statement. <laughs> like, bro, this is not my most important hour of the week. I don't know who you are, but. So I want to start with the existential angle. Right? And what I mean by that is simply this we're all searching for meaning outside of ourselves, regardless of what you believe. Regardless of whether you've bought into this whole Jesus guy or whether you've got some questions about this Jesus guy, whether you're like antagonistic towards this Jesus guy, we're all looking for meaning and most of us are looking for meaning outside of ourselves. This is the idea of transcendence. There's something beyond us that we're like yearning for or striving for, or looking to connect with. And worship is our quest to find ourselves in something, or maybe to lose ourselves in something that's bigger than us, more beautiful than us, more captivating than us, more worthy than us. So even in a secular society, we look for meaning outside of ourselves. Right, even in, I was having a conversation with, um, there's a, a new friend I have that reached out to us uh, she lives in Tennessee, she's agnostic, and she's like, hey, I found y'all stuff on the internet, and I've got some questions and just want to talk to a pastor. 
And we've been having these really great questions, or really great conversations, kind of centered around her questions about faith and life and God, and right, it's like a pastor's dream. Um, and, and one of the things that she is really into is she loves like physics and she knows way more about physics than I ever will or will ever pretend to. And so like she's read all this stuff about theories of multiverses, but not like in the pretend Marvel universe multiverse, but like the actual real like there's a physicist and he poses this theoretical da 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 like jargon I can't even pretend to pronounce. Right, so, so even in the secular, there is no God. We are a closed system, and all that exists is the material world. We are saying, no, 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 there has to be something more. Even some of the most like vocal and like antagonistic towards theism, atheists, they're called the new atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's of the world, are like, well, maybe we were seated here by an alien race that's far more advanced, at, right? Like, uh, are you just kind of describing gods at this point? These powerful beings that like want us to honor them and get like, hold on, wait a second. This is literally like a deity. Anyways, uh, now I've got the meme in my head of the History Channel guy going, aliens. <laughs> All right. So worship is very much a part of who we are, even as a secular society. And I want to posit this, that worship is simply about faith. What do you trust? What is it that thing, what is that thing outside of yourself that you think is actually going to give you meaning? It's going to make you whole. And if, I, if I live into this enough, if I buy into this enough, if I, if I give enough of my flesh to this thing, it'll give me real life. It'll save me. What is it that you think is going to make you happy? Where do you think life is found? This is the question of worship. And when we pose it that way, all of a sudden things start to shift. We're like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Because if we're being really honest, if I'm being really honest, and I'm the freaking pastor of this church, uh, Sunday mornings aren't exactly the thing that I think about. Like, what is the thing that I need in my life that will make me happy? I know, I need to go to church on Sunday morning and yell at a bunch of people. And yet I think this is exactly where it's found. But uh, I want to give some examples. Some, uh, right, this is me kind of grasping at straws. Where are the, the loud things in the world around us that are saying, hey, worship this, give your life to this, give yourself to this, give your time and money and focus and energy and adoration to this, and then you'll be happy, then you'll be whole, then all of life will be complete. How about the hustle? If you give your life to the hustle, if you sacrifice enough to the hustle, if you just keep grinding, then you'll create an empire. You'll achieve your wildest dreams. You'll work harder than the person next to you, and you'll get what they don't have. Or maybe it's education. Maybe I become more and find life by knowing more and learning more. Maybe I know more than the people around me or more than my family or by learning more, I can somehow get control of some things. Maybe it's our status, where we fit in society or where we seem to think we fit in society or our appearance. Maybe if I just lost 10 more pounds, then I'd be happy. 
Maybe it's our activism. There are lots of good things in the world to give our lives in. If I can just lose myself in giving for the benefits of other people, then I'll find wholeness and healing and life. Or maybe it's our politics. We talked a lot about that last week. Or the obvious one, materialism. This is the one that I think just is constantly there for a lot of us. If I just had more stuff, I'd be happier. Or here's a sneaky one. How about family? If I was just married, or if I just had kids, or if I just had more kids, or if I just spent more time with my parents, or my aunts, or my great, right? None of these things that I listed here are bad things. Yes, work hard, get an education, like, uh, enjoy family, right? These are not bad things in and of themselves, but when we try and find ultimate meaning and life and satisfaction and joy and wholeness in these things, there's a word for that that the Bible has and it's called idolatry. These things can never satisfy us because they were never meant to satisfy us. They cannot fill the God-shaped hole we have in our soul. So what is it that you're spending your time on, that you're giving yourself over to? This is exactly what we see in the first century. And the church follows the Holy Spirit's lead in taking this idea of idolatry, this idea of giving yourself over to something other than God, they take it head on. So I wanna look at this like kind of strange but very important passage in the book of Acts. Um, so in the book of Acts, you've got this trajectory outward. It starts with Jesus ascending to heaven and saying, hey, go out into the world, which is exactly what happens. You start in Jerusalem, and by the time you get to Acts, Paul is in like the most powerful places in Rome. And there's this, this trajectory towards going out. Well, as they go out, right, the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus is being spread to a number of different people, including non-Jewish people. Which means now you've got a bunch of non-Jewish people believing in a Jewish Messiah and worshiping a Jewish Messiah. So a very practical and real question is, wait, uh, how should we expect these non-Jewish people to worship a Jewish Messiah? What expectations of worship should we put on them? And we get our passage, Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. So what's happening here is there's a bunch of what are called Judaizers, they're Christians who are going around following Paul, essentially, and saying, look, 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 I know you heard what Paul said. That's great. Here's what you need to do. You need to get circumcised, and you need to follow the law if you really love Jesus. And so this kind of scuttlebutt happens in the Christian world. Uh, that's what the entire book of Galatians is about. So this is like, huh, that's interesting. Go read Galatians, and all of a sudden, that piece of information will make sense of the whole book for you. Like, oh, this is what Paul is saying here. But the, like, the apostles, the original like, leaders of the church are in Jerusalem, and they're having to deal with this practical question. Hey, Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. They are like, very much being included into the people of God. What requirements should we put on them? And this is their announcement of what they've decided. Verse 22, then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates. And they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. So they sent like two people that uh, the church in Antioch, which is a bunch of Gentiles, would have known. They trusted, they knew them, but along with them, they're also gonna send some like Jerusalem representatives. This was a really common practice back in this, uh, this time. Like this is a, hey, this is an official thing that's happening. 
So the men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. So what's really cool here, I, sorry, history nerd time here, like it's, it's most likely that Luke has an actual copy of this letter and he's now switched and he's, he's writing his gospel, his, the, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and as he's writing it, he's like looking over at this actual transcript that he has of this actual letter and he's now like reading it to us, which is kind of cool. So this letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It's written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. This would have been the Judaizers. But we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with beloved Barnabas and Paul, who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. Do you hear how important this is? Right, in, in Luke's like version of the church, this passage is central. It is the explosive moment of like, oh my gosh, what is Jesus doing? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Okay. Uh, what's up with the meat and sex stuff? <laughs> This is, right, so a lot of times people will turn to this and be like, look, see, sexual immorality is bad. We should abstain from sexual immorality. And they'll like stuff all types of like whatever they think sexual immorality is into this phrase, this word. But then they ignore the eating meat and drinking blood part. Like, hey, don't engage in sexuality, but enjoy a rare steak. That's fine. Well, hold on, right? If we're, if we're reading the same Bible, like we should equally have a problem with both because they're right there side by side. What in the world is going on here? What does this have anything to do with worship? So worship in the first century was mingled with all of life, right? So we live in like a secular world where there seems to be like this uh, bifurcation between like secular life, normal life, material life, and spiritual life. I don't think that bifurcation is as like clean as we think it is, but back then there was no such thing. All of life was tangled up in and enmeshed in worship. So if you wanted to do better in the stock market, you went to the temple and you worshiped so that the God of the stock market, I'm being anachronistic here, there was no stock market or a God of that stock market, you get it. You would go and worship the God of stock market, make the sacrifice, oh, this is a pleasing sacrifice, here, you win in the stock market. Zach is probably somewhere cringing because he knows how little I know about the stock market <laughs> and how it actually works. Uh, right, and so the question is, wait, where is salvation found? How can I get a better life? How can I do something in such a way that is going to gain something for me? Their answer to that question was always tied up with the gods, the, the, the ones that were more powerful than them, that were ruling over their world in a sense. And so they would involve themselves in the pantheon. And the way you involved yourself was worship. What do the gods want from you? They want sacrifice. 
So you would go to a temple and you'd offer either yourself in an act of sexual immorality. I'll let you pull up the threads uh, and Google what that's supposed to do to the gods or use your imagination. Or you offered an actual animal to feed the gods. And as you burned the animal, the animal would go up into the heavens and the gods would feast. Oh, that was a delicious ram. Here, here's some blessings. And so to not worship in these places and participate in these practices would have been seen as like cutting off your source of life. So let's go back and hear it again. What, is, what are the apostles and the elders telling the Gentiles not to do? They're saying, hey, look, here's the only thing we ask. Worship Jesus alone. Don't look for life anywhere else. Don't look for blessings anywhere else. Don't look for what you need from anything else. Jesus is what you need. Worship Jesus alone. So the prohibition isn't about vegetarianism or sexual ethics. It's all about idolatry. It's about false worship. And so the only thing that the apostles demand is don't share worship with anyone else but Jesus. Leave your gods, flee from idolatry. So if we're all looking for something outside of ourselves to make us whole, and we're all at risk, then we're all at risk of worshiping something other than Jesus. And so this leads us to the second angle here, the theological angle. We're made to love and experientially know God. This is what it means to worship. We are made, we are created. It is uh, woven in the fabric of our being to love and to know our creator. So humans were designed to be worshiping creatures and we will absolutely worship something. A couple weeks ago, we went on a trip to, with some friends to um, Wimberley. It was beautiful. It was great. But one of the beautiful things about it was we got to have some like really good conversation that can really only come when you spend time with friends like where like no one can go anywhere. Um, like we spent like several days together. And as you do, you kind of get over the small talk and like, hey, the weather's nice. Like, yeah, well, the weather's the same. We're all here for hours and hours and hours. We can talk about something else. And at some point, we started talking about like kids and raising kids and just the variety of different faith backgrounds that we all came up in and were raised in. And the question was posed by someone like, hey, I've got a friend who's agnostic and believes that you should raise your kids kind of like in no real direction. You should raise your kids in a way that's like, let them decide what they believe. And this sounds really good on paper. Except that if it's true that we are all worshiping beings and we will worship something, not teaching them to worship Jesus is teaching them to worship something else implicitly. Teaching them that there is no God is just as theological as teaching them that there is a God. Right? Unfortunately, our kids are learning from us. Right? There's no way to avoid that. Or brainwashing. We're brainwashing them, however you want to put it. <laughs> Right? This is part of why we're inviting them in to church with us. We want them to see and experience our worship. I think it's important for them. It's formative for them. We're teaching our kids what to worship. And we see that when we raise up a child, we're, we're teaching them where to direct their innate longing for transcendence. 
hey, look, I know you don't feel it now. There's like some really beautiful innocence about you, but at some point, there's gonna be this urge that begins to grow in you where you think there's something more, there's something outside of me, there's something I'm, I'm not connected to that I need to connect to. What's the meaning of all of this? What's my purpose, right? All of these types of things, or maybe I'm the only one that has these questions. And we show them, no, no, here's, here's what's going on. In Christian terms, we're made to love and live in communion with God. And worship is our expression of that love. We're made to delight and praise and enjoy the divine. So then idolatry is false worship. It, it is like our misplaced or disordered spiritual hunger. So we have this like need to connect to God in us. And when we try to f- fulfill that need in other places, it is a broken version of love, a broken version of worship. And the problem with it is not that God's like, man, I'm really angry at you. I wanted that worship. Um, Even though some people try to paint that as the picture of God, that's not who God is. The reason that God wants us to worship him is because we are made who we're supposed to be when we do. Right? It's the same reason I want my kid to love me and have like a nice, happy childhood. Studies have shown that in a good, stable, safe environment, she will flourish. If she runs out and tries to live on the street as a (laughs) two-year-old, wouldn't go very well. She'd probably love that, by the way. But like, that's, that's not gonna lead to her benefit. She will not flourish in that environment. If she were to separate herself from me and my wife, it would not go well for her. Jesus does not want us to worship him because he's like a, a worship hog and needs all the worship and don't pay attention to anyone else. This is all rooted in love that as we worship God, we become whole. We become who we're supposed to be. And this is why humanity's number one problem is that we're worshiping the wrong things. Idolatry disorders our love and devotion, and we serve gods in expectation that they're going to give us life, and they only ever let us down. And a lot of times in the process, they're taking their pound of flesh. We sacrifice, we sacrifice, and we give, and we're expecting this like reciprocal relationship. Look what I've given to you. We don't get life in return. famous poet once said, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. It's Texas, come on. Okay. Another famous theologian said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Idolatry is our attempt to find rest in anything other than Jesus. It's when we functionally place our trust in things other than Jesus He's what our hearts are longing for. He really is like what you've been aching for. He really is the answer to so many of the things that your soul is longing for. Everything else is just a Band-Aid. And Band-Aids work temporarily, right? It's not that any of these other things are bad or that any of these other things don't give us something. They certainly do. I'm gonna go have lunch today. All I need is Jesus. I'll never eat again, right? That's not how that works. But if we're finding our ultimate satisfaction in things outside of Jesus, we're missing it. And so this leads us to like our practical angle. And this is the most important one. 
The practical angle is that worship forms and reforms us week after week. Like worship and our participation in it is actually doing something to us. So the question that the early church had to wrestle with is, wait, worship is sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, worship is sacrifice. You would go to a temple and you would like give something. Well, at this point, the temple's gone. Uh, We can't go to the Roman temples and worship. Wait, how do we worship Jesus? Their answer wasn't we sing songs, (laughs) right? At least not directly. They did sing songs, by the way. But in their mind, like worship was connected to the cultic practice of like sacrifice. So what's their answer? Oh, wait a second. What could we ever sacrifice to Jesus that would outdo, that would outshine, that would be more than anything uh, than what he's already given to us? So each time they met, they met for this purpose, communion. Communion was worship for them. That as we take communion, we are offering the sacrifice that was given to us back to God. We have nothing more beautiful and more uh, uh, worthy than this. And so uh, all we can do is give it back to you and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for the flesh and for the blood. And they saw this as their sacrifice. And this is one of the key things here that, right, as we talked about last week, Jesus is the one who is reigning and who will come in and establish his kingdom. And so as we begin to understand that, we start to recognize that our response to the rule of Jesus is adoration and orientation. So adoration is like worship that gives us a means and a vocabulary to adore and praise and delight in the lover of our soul. And we do this as we sing. We do this as we take communion. We do this as we uh, listen to the opening call to worship or the welcome video. We get lost in the beauty and the goodness of the divine. But it's also orientation. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to skip that. So there's this, I'm actually going to skip it, but I'll give you like the summary. There's this, uh, uh, Acts chapter 13 has this really short thing where Paul and a couple of other folks get together and they worship. The word that it uses there to worship is this really technical cultic term that was used throughout the Old Testament to describe like worship in the temple. And the big question is like, wait, they're not in the temple. What are they doing? Are they sacrificing something? Like this is Luke's whole point. Jesus has absolutely upended the way that we worship. We no longer worship in the temple because Jesus has made us the temple. The Spirit of God does not dwell in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. The Spirit of God dwells in us, according to Paul and to Luke and to Jesus. And so worship happens as we gather. The Spirit is now among us, and we worship him in his presence. If you have questions about that, I can give you the full thing, but Jesus, not the temple, is now the center of salvation and blessing for all the nations. And by the way, this is why they stoned Stephen. They killed Stephen because he said, you don't worship there anymore. You worship wherever the spirit is and the spirit's here, baby. Like, kill him. He's got to go. But our worship is also orientation. This is just a fancy word for what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. 
we think that the world is one way and all of a sudden we realize it's not and so we change some things up. We turn from our idols, from our disordered loves and we stop worshiping the things that we hope will give us life and we start worshiping the things that will actually give us life. And we're formed in it. And we're formed by it. And we do worship in the way that we do uh, like to help us to cling to Jesus. Like something's actually happening here. And so as we worship, I, I want to argue that there's two things happening. One is like a ped- pedagogical thing that worship is doing, right? Worship is actually practically teaching us something. And there's also like a sacramental thing that worship is doing. So worship practically helps us remember and reminds us and teaches us because we're in need of instruction. So like as we sing worship songs, for example, we are reminding ourselves what we believe We are learning new things about what we believe, and more importantly, we are telling each other, reminding and teaching the community in our congregational worship, this is what we believe. It's uh, it's kind of why any old worship song won't do, but this one makes me feel really nice. Yeah, but so do Radiohead songs. It doesn't mean I'm worshiping Jesus when I sing uh, Plastic Trees. It's pedagogical, it's actually teaching us. It's also sacramental. And this is the thing growing up in the churches that I did that I never really understood. My God is present and doing something in our worship. Like actually, there's something mystical happening. There's something supernatural, something beyond us, something that's like we can't put words to. We're encountering and communing with God in ways that are transforming and utterly delightful, even when we don't necessarily feel it, even when we can't necessarily sense it. And week after week, we come back to be formed and renewed, to delight and adore because we know that we need it. We're desperate for it. And for six days of the week and every other hour, however many hours that is, the world is telling us what else we ought to be worshiping what else we ought to be giving ourselves to. But what do we need more than Jesus? And maybe that's a question to actually ask yourself this week. Right, we all know the right answer. I don't need anything more than Jesus. Okay, right, but like, really, what do you need more than Jesus? What is like, man, Jesus is great, but if I had Jesus and then, gosh, then life would be like fulfilling. Jesus plus anything is not the good news. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus is everything. And that's what makes it so freaking scandalous. That's what makes it so bonkers and crazy and like, why would anyone believe this? Jesus is clearly not everything. You're going to Chipotle after this. How's Jesus feeding you? You're not, right? Um. We're so often blind to our tendency to give ourselves over to things, these other gods. So we devote ourselves to worship week after week. We devote ourselves to Jesus week after week. We cling to Jesus together as a community week after week to reorder our love, to find the relationship and connection that our souls long for and to come and offer the ultimate sacrifice back to God 
in hope and in faith that is actually doing something among us. This is what worship is. So I got a text message from a friend last night, and I'll finish with this. I try to go short, and I'm already way over. Sorry, I'll move that back down. There we go. Sorry, Hannah. You're doing great. So a friend of mine texted me last night. He said, hey, how would you finish this sentence? The Christian church is there to remind men, right, males, first and foremost, what? I'm like, what the heck? Like, I know this guy. I trust this guy. I love this guy. Like, this is a weird question that you're asking me, and there's no, like, context to it. Like, we haven't texted in about seven or eight months. It's just like, boom. I'm like, huh, this feels like a trap. But it was a great question because in all of this, like, ah, uh, wait, what do you mean? And uh, give me some context. And like, there's, these are loaded terms. I don't like, what exactly are you asking? Like, okay, hold on. What's the answer? The church exists to remind men, I would replace men with humanity. First and foremost, what? So the context was someone out there has said this recently, and their answer was to teach men how to be men and that they need to dominate women and do this really horrible, toxic, masculine stuff, and then we can save our country. The person's not even a Christian either, which is like, why are people listening to this dude? Anyways. But no, no, the question is a good one. What is the church here for? Week after week. What are we hoping we will be reminded of? What are we hoping to experience? What are we hoping to stir within ourselves? And I think, uh, I think my answer is the best answer. (laughs) My answer is that the Christian church is there to remind humanity first and foremost that Jesus is everything. And I'm not so confident in that answer because I'm confident in myself. I'm so stinking confident in that answer because I'm so confident in him. Jesus is everything. I know it's so hard to live like that on Monday morning. I get it. It's why we come back every Sunday. I know it's so hard to feel that, to like uh, stir that in your soul when you're tired and when you're stressed and when all heck is breaking loose around you. But cling to it. Cling to it. Jesus is really and actually everything. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I need you. We need you. Will you do what we can't do for ourselves as we gather on these Sunday mornings? Will you do what we're unable to do in our own hearts and inner lives? Will you help us to find real hope and satisfaction in you? Will you help us to find ourselves in you? And I'm begging you, Jesus, will you be faithful to us? Please don't leave us. Please remind us that our trust is not misplaced. It feels like it sometimes. Please remind us that you really are worth it when it seems like abandoning you and walking away would be so much easier. We love you, Jesus. Will you change us? Will you reform us? Will you make us more beautiful? Will you make us like you? We love you. Let's sing to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, 
get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.